Welcome to Pragmatic Live. I'm Mark Stiving, a Pragmatic Marketing Instructor, and today I'll be talking with Paul Young, another instructor with many years of experience managing marketing and product teams. Welcome, Paul. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Uh, you wrote one of Pragmatic Marketing's most popular articles. It was titled The X Factors, The Seven Traits of Rockstar Product Professionals. Uh, so this was in our spring 2013 issue. But I got to ask, what was your motivation for uh, writing this article? So it came out of a product camp presentation that I had done uh, previously. And the motivation for that presentation, which ultimately led to the article, was <clears throat> as I thought back across my career and also the careers of many people that I had worked with, I, I realized there was a really stark contrast between two people that I had worked with in my career. And I changed their names for the purpose of the presentation. I'll keep that change in place here just not to – incriminate the innocent. Um, but there were, there were two, two gentlemen uh, I call, you know, one of them Joe, one of them Bob. And, you know, they both had basically the same level of tenure, level of experience. They both had, you know, 15 to 20 years of experience. But one of them was kind of uh, stuck in a rut, so to speak. Uh, he was, you know, not able to advance in his career. He had kind of moved in parallel between several jobs, several different companies, uh, a couple of different times, and he was just having trouble advancing. Uh, whereas the other guy, had really put rocket fuel on his career, and he just kept moving up and up, and, and he was the kind of uh, person that uh, executives would seek out uh, for his thoughts on things like merger and acquisition, on business plans, what should our strategy be. Uh, he was the kind of person that um, always seemed to be in the know and have really good data and was really confident and able to express himself in, in executive audiences and, and so on. And as I kind of stepped back and thought about what are the traits that make someone accelerate in their career versus not? What you start to realize is that it's not what HR will typically say. You know, oftentimes HR will say things like, how experienced are you? You know, I want to find somebody with 20 years of experience in this industry and so on. And that's good, but it also doesn't correlate, in my experience, necessarily to effectiveness. Um, it's something else. There's, that's what I call the X factors that really cause the cream to rise to the top and uh, allow certain people to go beyond and achieve at levels that others can't. And that's what really led me down the path of, uh, of trying to grasp those, those X factors, those rock star potential traits, and, and document them for everyone to, to think about. Wow. So it seems like when we see contrast like that, it really gives us the ability to try to figure out what's going on, what's, what's behind the scenes. Um, so that was a great observation. Let's, uh, If you don't mind, let's talk about a few of those X factors. You listed – seven of them in your article. I'm not sure we'll be able to get through them all today, but, but we'll do a few. Um, it seems like the very first one you wrote is to inspire others. And, and it feels to me like that that's what leadership means. If I can inspire others, I'm there. I'm a leader. And so it almost seems like everything else that you wrote in there leads to that ability to inspire others. Do you see it that way or do you see it differently? Absolutely. Especially in a product role, you don't have the ability to issue what I, what I refer to as management edicts, you know, that, that say, go do this, you know, because I'm your manager. And effective managers of people don't do that anyways because, you know, that might work in the short term, not the long. When you're in a product role, you know, whether you're a product manager, product marketing manager, director of product, even VP of product, there's a softer skill set that needs to be used to influence and uh, influencing others and inspiring others to action so that they do what you want because they want to is a really big deal. And so what, that was, you're right, that was the very first thing I talked about in the article because it's, it's so important. And, and 
my big hypothesis in the article is that these are the types of skill sets that you don't necessarily have to be born with. You know, these are things that you can learn and that you can train in your team. Um, if you have a team that isn't quite there today, we can actually teach people these things, like how to inspire others. And there, there are ways to actually grow people into that ability. Yeah, I also liked that in the article you wrote in there uh, two sections for each one, besides the description of what the issue was, what the X factor was, you also wrote, here's how to look for it when you're hiring, and here's how to work on it. Here's how to improve yourself when you do that. So I thought that was really nice. Yeah, so, you know, it's not enough just to say, go inspire others, because that's sort of a cop-out in my mind. I also want to be able to say, if you want to inspire others, how are you going to develop that skill set? And if you're interviewing someone, how do you recognize that skill set? Like, for example, if you feel like maybe uh, you're listening to this podcast and you're weak on, <clears throat> or you can improve on your ability to inspire others, what do you do? And one of, the, one of the things that I suggest in there is that you have to always have what I call the why on the tip of your tongue. Um, in other words, why are we doing what we're doing? It's one thing to go to a development team and explain, we're going to build this feature in this next sprint, and we're going to work on this API or this SDK, or we're going to increase the thickness of the metal to this, you know, whatever. You know, that's great, but that's all about what. You know, we also need to explain why. Why does that matter? Um, and once people understand why they're doing what they're doing, they, they tend to work harder, faster. They come up with more creative solutions. They're, they're more inspired to do whatever they are doing on the team. Yeah, people who care actually work harder. There's no doubt. I gotta say, I like all of the seven that you wrote, but I really empathize with empathetic. <laughs> Turns out that we really do learn a lot from our bosses. But I, I had a boss once. His name was Jeff, and and he showed me empathy in a way I've never seen before. When he first joined the company, I was already at this one company, and and he came in as my boss, and he spent the first thirty, sixty, ninety days doing one-on-one -on -one meetings with everybody we interact with as a department. And it was amazing. He would, he would talk to people as his peers, people that were way below him. He truly wanted to understand what winning was for them, what made them tick. And, and so that way, I, I've never seen a more effective leader. Um, I've heard you use the term with them, what's in it for me. How did you learn this lesson? Where, where did this one come from from your perspective? Yeah, so similar to you, I also had was fortunate enough to work with a uh, a boss who demonstrated that through his action to me. And I think back to a, a particular scenario several years ago. We were having trouble uh, getting traction within the sales team for a product that we were trying to take to market. And you know the the, the product team, myself and others, kind of we swung and missed, and we swung and missed, and we kept not quite uh, getting our sales team to do what we wanted them to do and focus on this product. And it was really frustrating. And then one day uh, I was having a, a, a session with him and I was re relaying my, my thoughts and, and he just asked a couple of really good questions that, that made me realize that I had no idea what my sales team was facing. He asked questions like, well, those 10 guys that you're trying to work with on the sales team, do you have any idea what their current quota is? Do, do you know what their plan to attain that quota is? Do you know how this new product that you're trying to ask them to go sell fits into their plan today? Okay. And as my answers were no, no, and no, he started to say, well, can you see maybe why you're getting pushback? It's because you don't understand the team you're trying to work with. And, you know, you go and ask them for something, and you don't know why they're they're not reacting positive to, positively to that. Maybe the first step is to go and just understand a day in their life, maybe shadow them, maybe do some stuff like that. 
And as I did those things, I, my, my result ended up being a lot better uh, just by doing a little bit of listing on the front end. It is an amazing thing, isn't it? And and yet we learn these lessons because we make those mistakes. Absolutely, absolutely. Out of the rest of them, what uh, what other X factor do you really like? Do you think is really powerful? So I really like. Um, I call it executive debater, and, and it falls within the, the the overall heading of what I call executive acuity, uh, which is you know, regardless of your title, do you have the ability to go toe to toe? Uh, with somebody on your executive team and debate them face-to-face on an issue because it pulls together so much other stuff. Um, you know, you have to, of course, have the, the market data to be able to do that. You have to have the confidence in yourself to be able to have that conversation. Uh, and you have to just have that executive mindset to say, look, it's not personal. It's not me versus you. We're just having a conversation about the future direction of this product. And if you see yourself as the president of your product, uh, then you should have no problem doing that. And, and again, it's another skill that can be learned through practice and through working at it. But I find that executive teams really do, uh, most of them really do respect and and thirst for their product team to provide that kind of leadership to them. You know, they, they don't know everything. They want somebody to come to them with a strong perspective, a strong point of view, backed in data, that says we should go in this direction. And, and sometimes they'll overrule that, and that's fine. But if you're not providing that direction, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. Most executive teams are going to step in and fill that, and are they going to do it using data? Maybe. But a lot of times they won't. And so I posit that it's healthy, healthier for your company and for your career uh, to develop that skill set and provide that leadership on your own, especially if you want to put rocket fuel uh, into your uh, career in the product team. Yeah, I think that's a great one. I worked with a boss once, and he had a great line. He said, you can make any decision you want, but as soon as you come ask me, I now get to make the decision. It was pretty powerful. And I think the biggest fear we have is that we don't have the confidence or, or we don't really know how management's going to react or leadership's going to react when we go and sit in these meetings. And it seems to me when we go in with an attitude of I'm trying to find truth, I'm not trying to prove that I'm right or I'm smart or anything like that. It's just all about truth. It makes it so much easier to sit in meetings with people that are that are way above your level and just have great conversations. Yeah, it's not personal. Absolutely. I have to say my next favorite, as I look through the list, is pitch factor. Now, that's because I happen to have been a Toastmaster for the last eight years. I love public speaking. I've, I've seen the way it transforms people when they go to Toastmasters and they learn to speak and it builds confidence. But but I got to ask you, why did you put it in here as, as being part of a leader? Well, pitch artists, the one you're talking about, and the other one, synthesis, are kind of intertwined like, like strands of DNA in my mind. Synthesis is all about can you take a whole bunch of raw data and turn it into something that's compelling. And then pitch artists is all about can you take that now compelling story and relay it to others. And I put it in here as an X factor for product teams because, I mean, we've all seen those people in our careers that have done all the work, they have all the data, they maybe even have a good uh, spreadsheet or presentation or something to back it up, but they don't have the confidence to get in front of others and actually show it and tell the story and drive to a call to action and say, this is what we should go do. And, and that's really what Pitch Artist is all about. It's, it's having the confidence to stand in front of your peers and your executives and those above you and tell the story uh, that you've assembled. 
and be able to handle questions, think on your feet, hone the content, style, tempo, tone uh, to the group at hand so that you can do everything else, like inspire others and debate with executives and, and everything else. And so, you know, you, you can't be a rock star unless you're able to get up on stage. And so pitch artists is really what wraps that together. You know, can you take your story to an audience and, and, and tell it with alacrity? Nice. And, and I like the word, the, the fact that you use the word story several times in that description, because when we stand up and give a presentation, when we tell stories, it makes them so much more interesting, memorable. Uh, we, we capture people's attention as opposed to just giving facts and data. And so oftentimes we tend not to tell the story, and we really should. We should be in there telling stories. So Absolutely. Yeah, there's no quick – I mean, you know this as somebody who's been to Toastmasters. There's no, no quicker way to put an audience to sleep than to fight statistic after statistic, you know, because numbers just don't resonate in a way that stories do. You know, people remember one good, you know, soul-fulfilling story more than they do a dozen statistics. And I don't know why there's there's psychology around it. I'm not sure why, um, but it just works when you put a story around it. Absolutely. So, so Paul, uh, we've talked about almost all of them. I think there's a couple left. Uh, which of those two do you think uh, would you find most next powerful? So we're down to truth to power or consensus builder. They're both really important. I, I like um, – well, we've talked a lot about debating with executive teams, and truth to power kind of feeds into that. Can you speak the truth to those in power? Um, but Consensus Builder is one that we haven't hit on quite a bit. So Consensus Builder is kind of the other side of the coin, which says, can you go to those around the organization and, you know, empathize with them, understand what their goals are, and then build consensus around the direction that we're trying to go? Um, you know, consensus oftentimes can be elusive, you know, especially as different teams have different measurement criteria uh, that define success. And sometimes those measurement criteria fight with one another. You know, oftentimes, for example, Development teams are measured on things like time, like date and scope, uh, whereas the product team is measured on things like, you know, net promoter score or getting the product right in the market. And sometimes those things are in direct conflict with one another. Um, and so how do we build that consensus so that we reduce that internal strife and actually push out the things that the market needs? This is, again, another skill that can be trained for and can be recognized uh, in an interview. Um, typically, the way I would interview the skill, the consensus building skill, is not one that I ask candidates about directly uh, because people will feed you all sorts of stuff in an interview. Instead, if you get to the point where you're ready to call on somebody's reference, um, I don't like to just call a reference and say, hey, would you, recognize, would, you, would you recommend Mark for a role? Instead, I would ask that reference, give me, an, give me a specific example where Mark built consensus around, across the organization and, and how he did it. Um, and if somebody's truly familiar enough with someone to be a reference, they should be able to provide a couple of simple examples of that. And, and I find that you know past performance can be an indicator of future results uh, in this regard. Yeah, it rings true to me, and it feels a lot like Consensus Builder ties in a lot of the other ones we were talking about as well. So empathy, you mentioned, and that's really inspiring others, building that same set of goals so we can all go achieve the same goals. So Absolutely. These these all feel very intertwined to me. Okay, Paul, I got to tell you, my favorite hint when I want to tell people how to learn to be a leader, uh, first thing is we've got to talk about the difference between a leader and a manager, and that is a manager is someone who can tell people what to do, and a leader doesn't have to and oftentimes can't. 
And so as product managers, we find that we have to be leaders in our companies because there's lots of people we're trying to get to do things for us. But my favorite uh, exercise for people is to go join a volunteer organization and take an officer's role. Because once you're an officer in a volunteer's organization, you don't get to tell anybody at all what to do. And the only way the place runs is if you act like a leader. What do you think of that one? I think you're spot on. Yeah, I can think of uh, – I'm sure you have examples in your in your life, and I've got a couple from mine uh, that I can think of right off the bat where, where I saw that to be true. You know, in a, leader, in a, in a volunteer organization, no, nobody's there because they're getting a paycheck. Uh, well, yeah. very, very rarely. People are there because they want to be there. And if they don't want to be there, they disassociate and they go spend their time doing something more valuable to them. And so it's, it's that much more important that all these soft skills that we intertwine together for X factors are brought to bear because, yeah, if people don't believe in the mission, if they don't believe in, in you as an officer of the organization and your ability to take a, a team together to the goal that we're trying to get to, then uh, they're, they're just going to start disappearing. You know, that's a great that's a great tip. That's a good way to test your chops and maybe develop some of these software skills that you could then apply to your business life as well. Paul, I happen to know that you are a barbecue aficionado and you live in Austin. I have never had bad Texas brisket. What's the best place to go for brisket in Austin? First of all, I love that I love that question. Um we uh, we've chatted about this many times, you know, Mark, because Mark and I travel a lot together, and you know, I, I will say every Austinite, every Texan has their favorite barbecue joints, probably plural. Um, but that question is also kind of dangerous because you know it's, it, you can't name one place, right? Because you'll offend a constituency. You know, there's people who like one place and they're married to it, and then there are people who like other places and so on. Uh, and so I'll give you I'll give you my sort of top three if that's all right. Um, sure. In no particular order. Um, <clears throat> so obviously there is the Salt Lake. You know that's uh, kind of a old school. If you really want the experience, you have to go down to Driftwood, which is about I don't know 40 minutes south of Austin, and get the full. That, sometimes people refer to that as Barbecue Disneyland uh, because it's just <laughs> this huge huge campus. And it's BYOB type place, you you know, and you just go and have a great time. They have live music. That's always a lot of fun. Um, the the new school is uh, is Franklin's or John Mueller uh, Barbecue, um, and they've won all sorts of awards, and they're just fantastic. Um, and then my staple barbecue, the one that I kind of always go to as a default, is uh, Rudy's Barbecue. There's about a dozen of them locations uh, all scattered throughout Austin. It's kind of a chain, a local chain. Uh, they're starting to spread into other parts of the country now, and it's in a gas station. And people are like, "Really, barbecue in a gas station?" But then you go and and you and you experience it, and it's really, really good, and it's inexpensive, and the quality is top notch. It's just fantastic. So, I would say if you're in Austin, if you're in Texas, and you have a chance to go to one of those places, you really, you really can't go wrong. Thanks. I gotta say, I've eaten at Rudy several times, and and you're right. It's really weird that it's a gas station, but the food is amazing. Yeah, it's totally, so, totally out of expectations, but yeah. awesome. Excellent. Well, Paul, thanks so much for your time today. It's been fun. I certainly hope we can do it again sometime really soon. I would love to. We can get some barbecue. Yeah. If you'd like to see Paul's original article, you can find it at pragmaticmarketing.com. Then click on our resources tab. From there, you'll find the Pragmatic Marketer Magazine Spring 2013 issue. 
Also, if you have questions you think our panel of experts could address, please let us know at experts at pragmaticmarketing.com, and we'll see you next week on Pragmatic Live.